Section 62 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 18 Catholic Europe by the Reverend William Barry, Part 2. Not doctrine, but canon law occupied the six local assemblies at Tergui between 1431 and 1440. The two held at Béziers in 1437 and 1442, and that which met at Nantes in 1445 and 1446. Italy had its Council of Ferrara in 1436. Portugal, in the same year, met in council at Braga under Archbishop Fernando Guerra. German synods were held frequently about this period at Bamberg, Strasbourg, Ratisbon, and Constance. At Salzburg, in 1437, a code of reform was drawn up which other councils repeated and enforced. It dealt with reservations, that deadly plague of papal and episcopal finance, with the moral disorders of the clergy, and with many abuses, the effects of which have been strongly depicted in Protestant satires. The Synod of Freising, in 1440, condemned usury and was loud in its denunciation of Jew moneylenders. There was a Synod of London in 1438. Edinburgh held another in 1445. The numerous and well-considered statutes of Soderkoping, over which the Archbishop of Uppsala presided in 1441, and of other assemblies in Scandinavia between 1443 and 1448, reveal the widespread evils from which religion was suffering. They insist on prayers in the vernacular, on frequent preaching, on a stricter discipline among the clergy. A French synod at Rouen in 1445, which enacted 41 canons, condemned in emphatic terms witchcraft and magic and many other popular superstitions, together with the non-residence of beneficiaries and the tax which prelates were not ashamed to gather in from priests who kept concubines. At Angers, in 1448, a severe attack was made upon the traffic in spurious relics and false indulgences. Many strokes might be added to this picture, but there is an inevitable monotony, as in the abuses painted, so in the remedies proposed for them, none of which laid the axe to the root. Unless princes and nobles could be hindered from masquerading as bishops, though destitute of piety, learning, and vocation, the ancient evils must continue to flourish. The odious charges laid on a poverty-stricken clergy, at once too numerous and too heavily burdened, which took from them their first-fruits, their tenths, their fifteenths, were not abolished in a single one of these councils. Nor was the abominable practice of charging money dues on every office of religion abandoned, until the floods came, and the great rains fell, which threatened the house with destruction. The master idol, which it was impossible to pull down, was mammon. 
culture was ruined by immorality, and religion itself by simony, while for the sake of a living, crowds professed rules of perfection which they made little or no attempt to observe. Yet, Cusanus showed them a more excellent way. In February 1451, he began to execute his legatine commission at Salzburg, where he presided over a local synod. He traveled in unpretending guise, preached wherever he came, and displayed zeal and even tact, which was not his special quality, in reconciling the parish clergy with the mendicants, and in bringing back monastic discipline to its former purity. At Vienna in March, he appointed three visitors to the Austrian houses of St. Benedict, then by no means attached to Rome. Fifty convents in due time accepted the reform. Cusanus took in hand the Augustinian canons, held a synod at Bamberg, and endeavored to regulate the troublesome question of Easter confession to the parish priest, on which strife was constantly arising with the friars. At Würzburg, he received the homage of seventy Benedictine abbots, who promised obedience to his decrees, though all did not keep their engagement. The Boersfeld congregation, which brought under strict observance as many as eighty-eight abbeys and several nunneries, was already flourishing. It had been set up by John Dederoth of Minden, who became abbot of Boersfeld in 1433, and was closely allied with another zealous reformer, John Rode, of San Matthias at Trier. But the original impulse appears to have been derived from the Augustinian houses, which had adopted the rule of Windisham, and the famous John Bush may be named in the present connection. This indefatigable preacher visited and succeeded in reforming a large number of convents in Thuringia and the adjacent parts. Cusanus examined and approved the statutes of Bursfeld in May 1451. He appointed visitors to the convents of Thuringia and, in June, opened the Synod of Magdeburg, which passed the usual decrees touching reform of the monasteries, concubinary priests, and economic oppression as practiced by Hebrew moneylenders. But his next proceeding, an attempt to put down the pilgrimage to the miraculous host of Wilsnack, was the beginning of great troubles, and met with no success. Archbishop Frederick of Magdeburg, who had supported the cardinal in this attempt, was, however, an opponent of John Bush, and in 1454 the latter returned to Windisham, so that the decrees of Cusanus were not, in the end, carried out. He, meanwhile, continued his visitation at Hildesheim and Minden. In August he was at Deventer, whither much business followed him. The Holy See extended his legatine powers to Burgundy and England, but in what manner this part of his mission was fulfilled does not seem clear. That he fell into a serious illness, from which he did not recover until February 1452, may be ascribed to his apostolic labors and journeyings. It had been his intention to preside at the Synod of Mines, which was opened in his absence, by Archbishop Dietrich, 
in March 1452, and which repeated the enactments of Magdeburg against usury, clerical concubines, vagrant collectors of alms, and the holding of markets on feast days. Other decrees imply that superstition was rife, and that crime was not unknown in holy places. The cardinal confirmed these statutes, which were published in many diocesan synods. In March 1452, he presided over a gathering at Cologne, in which 21 decrees were published, all indicating how deep and wide were the wounds of religion in the German church, the wealthiest and the most feudalized in Christendom, and how little prospect there was of healing them. It is not the way of religious councils to legislate for evils which do not exist or have attained only slender proportions. And we must conclude from the reiterated acts of authority that all over the West the bonds of discipline were loosened, that clerics in various places broke their vows with the connivance of bishops, that into some convents vice had found an entrance, and that many more had lapsed into ease and sloth. Yet in the largest houses, immorality was rare, nor did Lutheranism receive its first impulse from the relaxation of conventual rule. That the clergy as a body were, throughout this period, corrupt or immoral, is an assumption unsupported by definite evidence. When this century was ending, Trithemius, abbot of Sponheim, celebrated Cusanus as an angel of light appearing to the fatherland. He restored, said Trithemius, the unity of the church and the dignity of her head. His mind embraced the whole circle of knowledge. The cardinal, while not disdaining the tradition of the schools, had busied himself in Italy with Plato and Aristotle. He encouraged the study of the classics during his embassy to Constantinople, collected Greek manuscripts, and won a reputation in astronomy and physics which entitles him to be named as a forerunner of Copernicus. With George Purbach and John Muller of Königsberg, who died Bishop of Ratisbon, he kept up a correspondence on scientific and literary topics. His designs for the exaltation of the imperial power, though somewhat chimerical, stamp him as a patriot who would have prevented by timely changes the disorders which Charles V, a Fleming or a Spaniard rather than a true German emperor, could not overcome. But he failed in politics, and his other reforms bore little fruit. Of the hundred and twenty-seven abbeys which accepted his statutes, not more than seventy observed them in 1493. Cusanus had been appointed Bishop of Brixen directly by the Pope, without the local chapter being consulted. This was a violation of the Concordat, and the chapter appealed to Archduke Sigismund, Count of Tyrol. But the Cardinal was peacefully installed, and when he came back from his legatine mission in 1452, he set about reforming his diocese, which stood greatly in need of it. He began with a visitation of the convents. At Brixen, he turned the unruly sisters out of their house. The Benedictine nuns of Sonnenberg 
pleaded exemption, and, like the chapter, called upon Sigismund, who, though notorious for his profligacies, took up their defense. Very unwisely, Cusanos, by way of answering the duke, laid claim to a temporal jurisdiction, and enforced it by anathema and interdict, which were little heeded. The Tyrolese detested strangers, and wanted no reform. In 1457, the cardinal fled from Wilton, declaring that his life was in danger. Calixtus III interdicted Sigismund, and the duke, prompted by Heimburg, a lifelong enemy of the Holy See, appealed to the Pope, better informed. This did not avail with Cusanus. He proceeded with his censures, hired troops out of Venetia, and cut to pieces a band of forty men who were in the pay of the Sonnenberg sisters. In 1459, Pius II undertook to mediate. He was not successful. On the contrary, Sigismund, who had pleaded his own cause in Mantua, went away dissatisfied and was preparing an appeal to a future council when Pius launched the bull Execrabilis, January 1460, by which all such appeals were condemned and forbidden. Here, we may remark, is evidence of the motives on which the popes distrusted conciliar action, because if it could be invoked at any time and for any reason against them, their jurisdiction was paralyzed. A year later, the duke made the cardinal his prisoner at de Bruneck and demanded a surrender of the points in dispute. Cusanos yielded, escaped, fled to Pius at Siena, and cried aloud for satisfaction. The pope, after fruitless negotiations, excommunicated Sigismund, laid his dominions under interdict, and brought Gregor Heimburg once more into the field, who drew up a formal appeal to the council. A war of pamphlets followed, bitter in its personalities on all sides, but especially damaging to Pius II, whose earlier years were little fitted to endure the fierce light of criticism now turned upon them. Heimburg's language, though moderate, was unsound from the papal point of view. It was colored also by his personal dislike of Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini, with whom he had a long-standing quarrel. Prelates of Germany, he exclaimed, insist on the council as the stronghold of your freedom. If the Pope carries it, he will tax you at his good pleasure. Take your money for a crusade and send it to Ferrante of Naples. The Bishop of Feltre replied on behalf of Pius, while the German princes took part with Sigismund. No one regarded the interdict. Dieter of Mainz, after being excommunicated and deposed, took up arms against the Curia, and a miserable war laid waste Germany. The cardinal's death brought his troubles to an end in 1464. Heimburg passed over to George Podibrat and the Bohemians, only at last to seek reconciliation with Rome. Sigismund received absolution. The Curia triumphed in the conflict at Mainz. An interval of quiet followed, during which the movement of learning went its way prosperously, and religion kept the peace with humanism. 
This humanism, or, as it may be termed, the earlier Renaissance, flourished at many centers. Realist and nominalist were of one mind in promoting classical studies, although Ulrich von Hutten has persuaded the world that Cologne, the headquarters of monasticism and the Inquisition, loved to dwell in Egyptian darkness. The inveterate quarrel, which is as old as Plato, between poets or men of letters and philosophers who seek wisdom by process of dialectic, must not be overlooked when we read the judgments of the later humanists on a scholasticism that they despised without always understanding it. To them, technical terms were a jargon, and the subtle but exquisite distinctions of Aquinas spelt barbarism. But now, printing with movable types had been invented. From mines it was, with incredible rapidity, carried over Europe to Rome, London, Lisbon, and even Constantinople. The clergy, to quote the words of Archbishop Berthold of Mainz, Hannenberg, hailed it as a divine art. They endowed printing presses, crowded the book markets, almost impoverished themselves by the purchase of their productions, if we may believe Coburger's unwilling testimony. They composed, as well as distributed innumerable volumes, of which the purport was to teach, to explain, and to enforce the duties of religion. The first book printed by Gutenberg was the Latin Bible. We will pursue the story of its editions and translations in due course. Here it is seasonable to record that many prelates, like Dahlberg at Worms and Heidelberg, were munificent patrons of the new art, that others, like Scherenberg and Bibra, published indulgences for the benefit of those who bought and sold printed books, but that if we would measure the depth and extent of civilization as due to the diffusion of literature through the press, we must look to the wealthy middle class and the free cities of Germany, to Augsburg, Nuremberg, Ratisbon, and the Rhine bishoprics. Once more, Deventer solicits our attention. Its occupation with the copying of manuscripts was to be ruined by Gutenberg's types, but so long as the brethren lasted, they did no small service to education, whether we regard its matter or its methods. To their school has been referred the illustrious Rudolf Agricola. Alexander Hegius presided over it, and among its disciples were Rudolf van Langen and Desiderius Erasmus of Rotterdam. Agricola is often called the German Petrarch, on the ground that he labored incessantly during a short life. 1443 to 85, to spread classical learning north of the Alps. With a passionate love of the ancients, he combined deep devotion to the sacred scriptures. His last years were spent in religious meditation. Hegius, though an older man, looked up to him as a guide in all learning. And while it must be admitted that Hegius did not understand Greek and was not an accomplished Latin scholar, Yet, in the thirty-three years, 1465 to 98, during which he ruled as headmaster at Deventer, he led the way to better things by his improvement of the German manuals. As is elsewhere told, he died poor, leaving only his books and his clothes. 
Rudolf van Langen, provost of the cathedral in Deventer, new-modeled the schools of Westphalia, drew crowds of students to Munster, and sent out teachers as far as Copenhagen, in which capital a university had been founded in 1479. He was sent on a mission to Rome in 1486, where his amazing knowledge of Latin excited the admiration of Sixtus IV. Not only the ancient classics, but their native antiquities, poetry, and topography engaged the attention of these Teutonic masters. But they were zealous above all to diffuse the knowledge of the Bible in the vernacular, as in the Latin Vulgate, and are aptly termed the Christian humanists. None among them was more celebrated than Wimfeling, born at Schlechstadt in 1450, living down to the tumultuous period of the Reformation, he is a fine example of the priest, scholar, teacher, journalist, and patriot, as Germans then conceived of such a figure. Strasbourg was proud to own him. Reuschlin became his pupil. With equal heat and eloquence, he denounced unworthy friars, the greedy curia, Jewish financiers and the poets or literary pagans, as he deemed them, who were leading the Renaissance astray from orthodox paths. But education in theory and practice was his proper mission. Of his writings on the subject, 40,000 copies, it is estimated, had been thrown into circulation by the year 1500. His Isidonius Germanicus, Guide of the German Youth, dated 1497, is accounted the first methodical treatise on teaching by a German hand. It was followed three years later by a second work entitled Adolescentia, which marks an era in the science of pedagogics. His pamphlet, On the Art of Printing, 1507, offers a lively sketch of German culture warns his countrymen against perils which were then rapidly approaching, and contains a hearty expostulation with princes, nobles, and lawyers, who were unprincipled enough to sacrifice the old freedom of their people to the Roman law, and the national prosperity to their own covetousness. Wimfeling offended many interests. As an Alsatian, he sounded the alarm against French ideas and French invasions, it was not to be expected that he would find favor in the eyes of Hebrews, whom he charged with usury, of Roman courtiers, Lutheran controversialists, or self-indulgent men of letters, all of whom he assailed. Somewhat narrow in his views and pedantic or harsh in expressing them, this vigorous partisan has suffered in the esteem of posterity. He may, nevertheless, be classed with Reuschlin as an enthusiastic student whose researches left his religion intact. He desired to see Germany free and independent, neither enslaved to the King of France nor burdened with the hundred gravamina due to a bad ecclesiastical system of taxation, to papal nepotism and other enormities against which he reiterated the strong national protest of 1457. Had such men as Wimfeling been admitted to the confidence of the Roman court, had their knowledge of German law and custom been turned to good account by Julius II or Leo X, 
a peaceful reformation might still have been effected. They resisted the encroachments of the new imperial legislation, which was destroying the liberties of their towns and the comfort of their yeomanry. They desired to protect the farmer from the moneylender. They abhorred paganism, even when it brought the gift of culture, and they taught every rank to read, to pray, to make fuller acquaintance with the open Bible. When the church parted asunder, and the war of the peasants broke out, many must have looked up to Wimfling as a true prophet. But his day was gone by. Meanwhile, the clergy had education in their hands. Scholars flocked wherever churchmen ruled, along the Rhine as in Rome itself. Freedom to learn, to teach, to print was unbounded. The greatest of medieval universities had been Paris. Not to pursue its earlier and informal beginnings, it had grown up on the Ile de la Cité since 1155, when the abbot of Saint-Genevieve appointed a chancellor whose duty it was to license teachers of schools in that district. Its statutes were compiled about 1208. Its first appearance as a corporation is traced to Innocent III and the year 1211. In perpetual conflict with chancellor, bishop, and cathedral chapter, the university owed its triumph to the popes, one of whom, Gregory IX, in his bull Parens Scientiarum of 1231, established the right of the several faculties to regulate their own constitution. Down to the Great Schism in 1378, the pontiffs were on amicable terms with Paris and did not encourage the erection of chairs of theology elsewhere, except in Italy, where they were introduced at Pisa, Florence, Bologna, and Padua. But they encouraged the faculties of Roman or canon law on the pattern of Bologna, as extending their own jurisdiction. With a divided papacy, came the rise of Gallicanism, already foreshadowed by the writings of Ockham and Marsilius of Padua, the Defensor Pacis. It was Paris that directed the anti-papal measures of Constance and Basel. The Holy See replied by showing favor to other academies, such as Cologne, which, from its foundation in 1388, had always been ultramontane. Some four-and-twenty universities were established during the period under review, of which those of Wittenberg and Frankfurt on the Oder were the last. That their organization was not independent of the Church or opposed to its authority is clear on the evidence of the diplomas and papal bulls to which they owe their origin. Even Wittenberg, though set up by an imperial decree, received an endowment from Alexander VI, and the Curia showed everywhere remarkable zeal in helping forward the new centers of learning. In France, Poitiers was founded by Charles VII in 1431, by way of retort on Paris, which had declared for the English king. Caen, Bordeaux, Nantes disputed the monopoly of the French capital which was further lessened by long and venomous wranglings between 
the realist divines, who were conservative in temper as they were Roman in doctrine, and the nominalists, or king and council men, determined at all costs to support the crown. Prague, also which had become the studium generale of Slavonia, drew to itself students from Paris, and Louvain exercised no small influence even on the banks of the Seine. A striking episode is the journey of Vessel to Paris, 1452, in the hope of converting from their nominalist errors his fellow countrymen, Henry van Zomeren and Nicholas of Utrecht. But they converted him from realism. Vessel adopted the philosophy of Plato and plunged into the quarrels of the day as to the extent of the Pope's jurisdiction and the abuses of the Curia. He lived in his new home sixteen years. Among his associates were Guillaume de Fallis, John of Brussels, and Jean Haveron de Picard, who, in 1450, became rector of the university. In 1473, Vessel, after a tour in Italy, returned to Paris. That was the year in which Louis XI proscribed the doctrines of nominalism as unedifying to the church, dangerous to faith, and unfitted for the training of youth. That Ockham's principles ended in a system sensuous at once and skeptical, it would not be easy to deny, and this consideration furnished a sufficient motive, though by no means the only one, on which its adversaries went. All professors were now bound by oath to teach the old scholastic tradition. Jean Bochard, bishop of Avranches, who had been the adviser of Louis in this proceeding, still, however, sought the aid of Vessel. It is said that the Flemish divine was appointed rector, and by judicious measures restored the credit of the great school, endangered during a long intellectual anarchy. Peace was secured. The edict which forbade the teaching of nominalist views was repealed in 1481. Reuchelin studied Greek in Paris, where the first professor of that language had been nominated in 1458, and in the Collège Montaigu, Erasmus underwent those experiences of which he has left us so amusing an account. But the Renaissance can scarcely be described as having made a commencement in France until Charles VIII came back from his Italian expedition. Its foremost leader and representative, the mighty-mouthed Rabelais, belongs to a period many years beyond the limits of this chapter. Neither saints nor scholars adorned an age which wasted itself in political strife, in contentions between the crown lawyers and the champions of church privileges, in the abortive council of Pisa, in the enforcement or the revocation of the pragmatic sanction. No serious thought of reform occupied the public mind in France. Local synods denounced abuses which they were powerless to remedy. But though Erasmus did not conceive a high opinion of German culture in his youth, the new era had dawned with Agricola and his contemporaries across the Rhine. An immense number of schools, elementary or advanced, are known to us from these years as existing in German regions. 
nine universities were opened. Brandenburg alone lagged behind. Berlin had no printing press until 1539. Cologne, which was realist and Dominican, the first among older foundations, still deserved its fame. Ortuan Gretius, despite the letters of obscure men, was not only a good scholar, but in his own way liberal-minded. John von Dahlberg, appointed in 1482 curator of Heidelberg and bishop of Worms, divided his time between the university and the bishopric. He helped to establish the first chair of Greek, and he began the famous Palatine Library. Reuschlin came to Heidelberg in 1496. He was made librarian and in 1498 professor of Hebrew. The Palatinate was, likewise, the headquarters of the Rhenish literary sodality, set on foot in 1491 by Conrad Seltes. At Freiburg, in the Breisgau, Zasius, an exceedingly zealous Catholic, taught jurisprudence. Gabriel Beale, last of the medieval schoolmen, though by no means of the scholastic philosophers, an admirable preacher, occupied for many years the pulpit at Tübingen, 1495. At Basel resided John Heinlein, who persuaded Gehring, Kranz, and Freiburger to set up a printing press within the walls of the Sorbonne in 1470, while he was rector of Paris University. Sebastian Brandt, author of The Ship of Fools, an ardent defender of papal claims, dwelt at Basel until he settled in his native city of Strasbourg. John Muller, otherwise Regio Montanus from his birthplace Königsberg in Thuringia, lectured on physical science in Vienna and Nuremberg, prepared the maps and calendars of which Colombo made use in crossing the Atlantic, and died Bishop of Ratisbon. He met at Rome in 1500 Copernicus, already a member of the chapter of Frauenburg, and at the time engaged in mathematical teaching. These names, to which many might be added, will serve to indicate the union of orthodoxy with erudition, and of a devotion to science with the spirit of Christian reform. In none of these men do we perceive either dislike or opposition to the sacerdotal system, to sacraments, or to the papacy. Sebastian Brandt, in particular, published his widely read and popular poem with intent to counteract the party of rebellion which was then rising. He defended the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, and in the height of his satire he is careful to spare the priesthood. On the whole, it appears that the German universities flourished rather in the years which immediately preceded the Reformation than in those which followed it. And if we accept Wittenberg and Erfurt, they almost all took sides with the ancient religion and the Holy See. The spirit of literature, as of science, is, however, in its nature, obviously distinct from the dogmatic method cultivated by all theologians in the 16th century. In papal times, said Luther towards the close of his life, men gave with both hands, joyfully and with great devotion. 
It snowed of alms, foundations, and testaments. Our forefathers, lords and kings, princes and other folk, gave richly and compassionately, yea, to overflowing, to churches, parishes, schools, burses, hospitals. Examination in detail proves that this witness of Luther is true. There never had been in Germany, since the days of St. Boniface, such a season of beneficence directed to the fostering of scholarship and piety. Churches, of which a long list remains, were built in towns and villages often on a splendid scale. German architects, like German printers, invaded all countries. They were found in Spain at Barcelona and Burgos. They were called in to complete the Duomo at Milan. The Gothic style in Italy was recognized to be of German origin. But it was especially on works of benevolence or education that gifts were lavished. Endowments, no small portion of which came from the clergy, provided for universities and almshouses, for poor scholars and public preachers, for the printing of works by well-known authors such as Wimfeling and Brandt. Cloisters became the home of the press. Friars themselves turned printers. Among other instances may be cited Marianthal, 1468, St. Ulrich in Augsburg, 1472, the Benedictines in Bamberg, 1474, the Austin Hermits in Nuremberg, 1479, and the Minorites and Carthusians who assisted Ammerbach in Basel. Typography was introduced in 1476 at Brussels by the Brethren of the Common Life and also at Rostock. They were energetic in spreading the new art. They called themselves preachers not in word, but in type. Non verbo, sed scripto predicantes. Their activity extended through the dioceses of Lübeck, Schleswig, and Denmark. They gave out books to be printed, which betokens a demand that they could scarcely satisfy. And in Windesheim and other houses, lending libraries were opened. In the district of Utrecht alone, wrote John Bush, the reformer, more than a hundred free congregations of sisters or begines had a multitude of German books for their daily reading. This was earlier than 1479. The demand fell into five or six large categories. The public wanted grammars and aids to learning. They were eager to be told about their own history and antiquities. They welcomed every edition of a Latin classic, but above all, they cried out for books of devotion and the Bible in their mother tongue. To sum up with one of the biographers of Erasmus, the early printed books of Germany were in the main of a popular educational or a religious character. End of section 62. Recording by Linda Johnson.